Welcome to All In, the Sustainable Business Podcast. Three veterans of sustainability, David Grayson, Chris Coulter, and Mark Lee, take you behind the scenes of the most innovative and exciting aspects of business today. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the All In Sustainable Business Podcast. I'm Chris Coulter, and I'm excited to be here with my colleague, Mark Lee. And we have a very special guest today, our good friend and remarkable sustainability leader, Aaron Mizan, who is the Chief Sustainability Officer at the brilliant, fantastic, phenomenal Interface, who we all love. Welcome, Mark and Aaron. Hey, Chris, how are you? Hi, Chris. Hi, Mark. So happy to be here. And it's happy to be with you. We've had such a long history, the three of us over the years and stuff, and it's, it's great to be able to chat, catch up, and I hope you're well. How was your pandemic? It was good. I mean, you know, I got a lot done around Atlanta, which is where I spent most of it with my husband and dogs. And it was a great time to disconnect from the world a little bit and focus on us. That's the recharging benefit of, of all that. That's fantastic. But Mark, why don't you tell us about the, the big news that we released today on the latest bit of research that we've been doing for many years? Really happy to. Today was the release of the 2022 Globescan Sustainability Survey, the sustainability leaders iteration of that one. This survey has been running for two and a half decades. We think it's got a unique place in the field. Started just Globescan and sustainability blended in about 10 years into its life. And then it's something that we've carried on inside the Sustainability Institute inside ERM. The, the survey every year goes out to sustainability experts worldwide. This year, it touched about 700 sustainability professionals, a few more than 700 of them across more than 70 countries. The survey was in the field in the spring, in March and April of this year. We asked them every year both which organizations are leading in terms of the transition to sustainable development, and maybe as importantly as who's doing that, we asked them why. And we find the results on both fronts are pretty interesting. For the year, you're going to hear some familiar names for sure, but I want to give those headlines and then maybe we can move into some of the things that were unique this year as well. So at the very top of the list in terms of who's recognized among companies as leading on the transition to sustainable development, Unilever and Patagonia are in the top two positions. And they've been sitting there for a number of years. Their leadership gap over others is shrinking and kind of growing or fully entrenching their hold in that top five. We also see IKEA and then Natura and Co from Brazil. And also Microsoft is in the top five for the first time. I would be incredibly remiss with Aaron on the phone if I didn't note that Interface is in the top group of leaders yet again. They are the only company that has been recognized in the group of corporate leaders every year since the survey. Number six. Yay, number six. Yay, number six. We'll take it. Top 10. Yeah, so testament to the work that's gone on there over such a period of time. And Aaron, we're going to come to you on that. But Chris, maybe before we go there, those are the familiar names at the top of the list. And yet we saw a shift this year in why experts say which companies are leaders. And maybe I can kick that over to you. And just to round out there, while there is some sort of consistency in the last five to 10 years of some of those leading companies, and maybe there's a little bit of a lack of a drama that a crazy company no one's ever heard of has popped up to the top, there are at the lower end, a good number of companies like Orsted and Danone and Susano and Walmart's back in there again and Tata. So there is 
an emerging trend we're seeing over time. I think it's shifting the leadership cadre. We can talk about that too. It's more global too, right? We see, it's more, we global. see more companies from outside of North America and Europe recognized among those global leaders. And more sector rich too, right? So you've got the Microsoft, but Google's on there as well. Apple sneaks in a little bit lower on. Those things are important. Tesla's on it again. And so there's that breadth and depth. So there is a, a slow transition. But if we go back to 97, if we recall, the same panel would point to BP, Shell, Dow Chemical, DuPont, the body mm -hmm. shop, and Interface, of course. Yep. <laughs> so, and Always the only, interface. The, the only cut through over 25 years is Interface. Like that's the remarkable thing. You know, this little company that could and does on an ongoing basis and has recognition. It's, it's extraordinary. But to your question, I think the interesting shift of how stakeholders are looking at leading companies and why they're identifying the leaders is based on two fundamental factors. One is this integration, which is really the business model transformation piece of the puzzle, and also impact. You know, show me the impact. Don't talk about what you're going to do. And the important age we went through of signaling and having aspiration and ambition. We've got to change the world. We've got to do these things. These are what we're trying to do. And we believe it. And it's important. And we've got purpose. All those things were important. But now stakeholders are shifting to that is almost table stakes. And now what I want to see is delivery of true impact. I guess I'm being a, an ad for something else that we've been doing over the last year and a half. We've been running an interview series called From Promise to Action. But those are the words that went through my head as you listed that off, Chris, that it's maybe easy to dismiss, but it was remarkable for a time just to have organizations step forward and say, we recognize these issues and we're going to do something about it. And now stakeholders don't ignore that part of the history, but they're saying, that's great. We've heard the promises now the urgency of all of these issues, which is another question we explore in the survey, is so high. Stakeholders identify climate as the most urgent sustainable development issue, but the reality is, is there's a list of 20 issues that they find all to be extraordinarily important. And there's a core set of environmental issues at the top, climate, water, and biodiversity, but then a whole host of issues that relate to equity about income inequality and food security and everything else that speak to the social condition that we exist in too. And they're also pressing, we need to see action across so many and such complex things. And Aaron, maybe that can take me to you, is I think Interface actually started to make the promises so long ago, and you've been working on the action. And one of the things I've observed in conversations with you over the years is you know how hard it is to move this agenda forward. Um, and then we've layered in a pandemic and it's been a complicated business environment, I know. But can you tell us a little bit about how Interface has persisted with this agenda and its action and maybe what's exciting about what you're doing right now? I'm always really excited when this comes out because I feel like a lot of the people who respond to this survey are people who do the work too. And so it's almost like getting a great recommendation on a running shoe from someone who <laughs> spends a lot of time in it, right? So I just secretly like, there's a lot of awards, there's a lot of lists, there's a lot of indices that have grown exponentially as this movement has grown over the last 20 years. But this one's really important to us because I feel like it's people who know the difference. And there are a lot of other lists where a lot of other companies get ranked that shouldn't be on those lists. So this one's special to us. Look, we've been there so long because we genuinely, from the very beginning, thought about transforming the business and integration. 
And it wasn't just a commitment for marketing that we never delivered on. But I love that you picked up on that. I mean, 25 years ago, the only thing you could do was signal intention. Yes. Because you didn't <laughs> you didn't know the pathway to share it, right? Yeah. Nowadays, this shift to accountability is amazing because we know the business pathway to decarbonize a business, right? We know some of those key levers to pull and what companies need to do. So it's no longer enough to signal ambition and talk about setting your science-based target. It's about what's the plan to really achieve it. So I think we've been there so long because we've lived through those eras and have always been so focused on integration that it's forced us to figure it out with a lot of intentionality. But we've also been very open about where we are in that journey. And so I think it's brought a lot of other people along. That's what I kind of wanted to ask you guys, right? So a big value of this for interfaces, it's actually great for our sustainability team and our internal employees to see us get recognized and don't ever discount the value of that. But lists in general, you've done this for a long time. You intend to keep doing this. Why do you guys think it's valuable? What's your perspective on that? I think it's valuable because it does shine a light of what good looks like and where good is going, which is critical. It does necessitate because of the way the question is asked, the simplicity of the question, which Ray Anderson, you know, Interface's founder, your mentor, a couple of times I've had a chance to meet with him before. Once he said, I love this survey because it's so clean and simple. It's asking a question again of, of our peers, what does good look like? Who's doing a great job right now? And it's a zero sum question. So it's not everybody. And there's no black box. There's no complex methodology, which are all valuable, but it's very clean. And so I think that the simplicity of it signals where the puck is going and where we've got to skate to. So I think that's the power of it. I think there's over the time, because everyone says, oh, but it's just communications or whatever, but the, the durability of it and the fact that these are hard marking stakeholders who know this industry the best in the world, we would argue, it's a very good alchemy of what leadership looks like. And, and it's a combination of both performance and also what you're doing for the broader agenda, which is where these stakeholders are coming from. So it's got a uniqueness that way. I think it's a great place where if you're intrigued by a company who ends up on the list and wanting to know more, it's a great start to an exploration of, okay, so so why is Microsoft there? Let's check out what Microsoft is doing, right? I mean, they've just on carbon, for example, their commitments to decarbonize the business, to take responsibility for not just current emissions, but historical emissions and everything they're doing in the carbon removal market. This list can lead you to, uh, I'm going to do a little exploration and see who's doing it well and see what I can learn. And it's a fairly quick path to find that, right? You look at some of these other indices and there's like, you know, the top like 200 companies. <laughs> it's sort of like, I don't really know exactly why they would be on the list or exactly what I would take away from that. I mean, Mark, what's your take on the list comes out? It's super meaningful to the companies on it. It's meaningful to others to see who's being elevated and what good looks like. What would you add to thinking about how people might use it? You hit on one of the things that I do love about it. Um, we talk about this being a survey of sustainability experts, which maybe begs the question, how do we define experts? And you hinted at it, that this is almost a jury of peers. So the, the primary way that we screen for sustainability expertise is how long have you worked in this field on these issues? 
And the vast majority of our respondents have worked in the field for at least 10 years. It's a very diverse set of respondents across sectors of the economy. The biggest respondent group comes from companies. So they're people with sustainability roles inside private sector organizations, but also a great dispersion of folks in government and academia and NGOs and media. This is, when you're looking for the wisdom of the crowd, this is a wise crowd. These are people who don't just judge this, they do this themselves in their own roles. And I think that's a powerful way to get at what leadership is. They're, they're the folks in the trenches. On one level, there is a, we should celebrate these organizations. This work is hard, this journey is hard. Uh, leaders deserve applause. For heaven's sake, let's pause for a moment and just urge them to pat themselves on their back and thank them almost for the leadership that they're demonstrating for the rest of us. It's also a way to disseminate that. You talk about it as a way to pick up learnings and lessons and to know where to go to look for them. And then I've been really intrigued in recent years. We've done a better job, I think, over the last few cycles of tracking also leadership within geographic regions in addition to the global mm -hmm. set. And we went after that wondering if we'd see more sectoral diversity, just different names generally. And it's been fantastic, actually, to see who pops up in Asia Pacific versus who pops up in Latin America. And we've only been doing that for a few years. So the patterns are just beginning to emerge. We used to ask that question periodically. But yeah. I think there's a richness, a layer down, too, that we've only begun to explore. I think we don't celebrate enough. We're all so tired. Mm, there's <laughs> a lot of doom and gloom. It's hard work. <laughs> and we constantly are working in this context of feeling like we're not doing enough. And I do think like that is actually maybe to close out our piece on the list. This is always a moment for us internally to like take a breath. And because we've been on the list so long, yes, we get other awards, you know, and yet, yes, we get recognized. But we always make sure that we talk about this internally. Sometimes we do an internal podcast for people at Interface or a webinar. Chris has actually joined us, was kind enough to do one with us in the past, or we'll do a podcast. And we actually say to our salespeople, make sure you share this with customers because this is an opening to the conversation before we get deep in the weeds of carbon neutral carpet tile and carbon negative carpet tile. This is kind of how we get to say that the work we do is important and we feel really good about it. The moments we can have in this movement in sustainability where we are celebrating leaders and we are identifying bright spots is super important to our mental health, to keeping people motivated. So I think we should talk about some bright spots. I think the list does convey those bright spots that are breaking through for people and the boldness of some of those moves. Tell us about this climate neutral product line that you're doing. What is this you speak of? Is it a bold move? What's going on? <laughs> I think for us, it's been a couple years in the making. I think it's the most exciting innovation at Interface, which is something that is a direct delivery on the promise we made in 2016. Like, look, we said we're getting close to the vision that Ray set for us, which is to be a company with no negative environmental impacts. That was where Ray's head was in 1994. We got really close to all of that decarbonizing our business and our supply chain, reducing our impacts, recycling, waste reduction. Like the sustainability movement in general, our perspective had changed. And we got really close to zero and said, crikey, zero is not enough anymore. We actually have to go much further to positive. So in 2016, we set a new mission 
a big part of that was a focus on climate. And we said, we actually have to not just be a carbon neutral business, we have to be carbon negative by 2040. We have to be a company that in our business and supply chain stores more carbon than we emit. That's how we're going to contribute to the broader issue of climate. And we gave our innovation team a year to come up with a prototype that would be a product that without offsets, but through raw material innovation across its full life cycle, stored more carbon than it emitted, right? And so it was first just a manifestation of, is it possible? First, you have to do the hero product, the pilot project, and we did is it. That, is that a very small carpet at first? <laughs> it's a little one? <laughs> yeah, it was a postage stamp. No, actually, it was standard issue. <laughs> and it was kind of all about new raw materials, more recycled content, and low footprint manufacturing, right? And so we proved that it was possible. So once you get over that hurdle, then it became about how do we scale it across the business? We've been able to, in during the pandemic... In 2020 and 2021, over the course of that year, make sure that you can now buy a carbon negative carpet tile from Interface in any part of the globe. Huge. And so, you know, like we get this like, well, that's really great. It's just carpet. It's just that that's wonderful. Interface is great. But I think the context we have to lay on top of that is global building construction and operation is 40% of global carbon emissions. That sector has to be decarbonized. In order for that to be decarbonized, we have to look at operational carbon reductions and embodied carbon, the materials, the stuff that's going to build the buildings, the structural stuff and the interior stuff. And so sometimes reminding people that something is maybe non-exciting as a carbon negative carpet tile fits into that context and what it can provoke is really interesting. So here's the best part. The best part is we sent a signal to our competitors, to the built environment, to our customer base that it was possible to create a carbon negative product. And that prompts them to change their procurement policies. It prompts them to challenge competitors, right? And so I think that's why it's exciting to answer Chris's original question. That's what's exciting. It's that in context of how that can change not just our company, but the industry and the whole system. I was intrigued at some of the language you used going through that, Aaron. And, and of course, an emphasis on carbon neutral and carbon negative. And one of the things I've been hearing just recently is people experimenting with the language of real zero as opposed to net zero. <laughs> To think is intriguing and it's going to be one of the catchphrases I think I'll be watching to see if it gains traction as well. Chris, from where you're sitting, is there a bright spot you'd point out right now if we're looking for some uplift in this otherwise or sometimes at least tiring journey? I mean, the real word is great. You know, we've talked before about the whole ESG versus sustainability, and we don't want to get too much into the semantics. But I think one of the benefits of the ESG movement has been to force investors asking questions and therefore companies and sustainability functions getting credibility and are become a part, a deeper part of what the business is about. So we've got all these companies activated. That's fantastic. What we have seen, I think, is there's a bubble piece to the ESG that has inflated and been real and true. And maybe this is again, the same kind of thing, company signaling, that's a phase you have to go through. Maybe the financial community had the signal and they believe in this, this is good for long-term value 
creation and value protection and therefore they're going to do it, but it hasn't been as real as it could be. So I think that bubble popping and getting to a more real level, maybe we're in a 2.0 level where the, the financial community actually starts delivering. Because you know, I think on the numbers of trillions of dollars of assets under management that have some sort of ESG thing is so staggering. And I think it made us feel good for a while, like, yes, we're here. But then when we step back and see the impacts have been really a pittance, <laughs> nothing's dramatically changed. So it's not the solution, like it's a different way and we've got to have a different valuation approach. I think the real and the real zero, I think that's interesting. I think we should be harder and harder markers on some of this stuff. And I think to Chris's point, we should celebrate real progress. And real progress isn't more investors asking about ESG or more disclosure requirements. ESG is a result of strategies in the business to shift your business or your product, to decarbonize your business, to decarbonize your supply chain. We shouldn't die false celebration in the so many companies now disclosing. I mean, there was a ton of celebration, right, with the SEC rules coming out around climate, which is great, you know, but we kind of did a gap analysis at Interface and basically said, well, we've essentially are disclosing all of that, you know, for the most part, and have been doing it for a really long time. And just disclosing that level isn't fundamentally about shifting what companies are going to do. I think there's something missing there. And like, you've been doing this so long, it's easy to forget how many others aren't. And I'm excited about the SEC rule, because it's going to draw in 10 or 11,000 companies at minimum. I agree strongly, Chris, that these numbers about the trillions of assets under management that are somehow ESG influenced are not very meaningful unless we know how they're influenced and the depth of that influence. But maybe part of the reason we got the SEC rule when we did is because it will address the issue of comparable and higher quality data from more companies across the market for investors and others. So you're and, excited and, about the new data? Yeah. Well, I'm excited about it. comparable data coming from many sources across the market and really being able to compare performance, which I still think after the years we've been doing this is incredibly difficult because people take very disparate approaches to disclosure. That's fair, because I think right now we still find ourselves in a place where we do a lot of comparing of commitments. You know, like Interface and our competitors. Well, we're all committed to sustainability. We're all committed to more sustainable products. But until we could see every single one of our competitors, which by the way, they don't now, Mark, disclose absolute GHG emissions reductions year on year. We don't know their scope three emissions and what the trends are. That's what's really exciting. I think what's a little disheartening is the amount of conversation that that the rules have sparked in companies about the need to hire more people to focus on disclosure. I've definitely heard a lot of, oh, we're going to have to get like a new ESG person. And it's like, boy, the more we invest time and energy in people whose jobs is just reporting the end results, we're missing a huge opportunity put people in innovation roles, to put people, you know, in the front end of the business that are actually making change. That'll be a, not for us, but I think for other companies, a really interesting conversation to have. 
that's the tension I think that you identified, Aaron. I mean, both of these things are, can be true at the same time, right? We've got this floor that has to raise up and that's what disclosure does. And that's exciting. And more companies then are in the game. They're, they're taking it more seriously, maybe not seriously, but more seriously. And, and that has to always ratchet up. Otherwise we get cramped like I am in a little bunker. We need the ceiling to raise at the same time too. So both of these have to ratchet up. The leader survey is an indication of where's the ceiling and what is the ceiling doing and how do we keep moving the ceiling forward? And the other ESG conversation is like, let's get the floor higher. So I think that's good. I have a little bugaboo when I hear companies complain about, oh, wow, more disclosure rules. We have to hire someone. These are companies with 80,000 employees. Hire someone or fire a lawyer and accountants and hire an ESG specialist. Like, are, we, are we really supposed to be yeah. that upset and distressed? I mean, the problem is that sustainability functions still are not resourced effectively compared to other functions in the organization. And we've got to find a way to fight for it. And you can do both. You can disclose more and hire someone and you can be innovative. Totally. And I think that's true. I think you'll see that a piece of this will, as these rules take effect, what will be really interesting is where it lands in companies and what roles sustainability teams have, right? I mean, right now we're advising and working with our IR team to do a gap analysis, but ultimately this needs to now be embedded into our IR slash financial reporting side of the house, right? because this is just another part of doing business now. And so I think that part can really be celebrated. And then what we have to figure out is to the extent that all this other voluntary stuff is happening, blessedly, are there things that can go away that this stands in place of because we'll have a much more organized just by virtue of the, you know, having to follow the rules of disclosure way to tell people where we are. And I think just the challenge there is that we don't overcomplicate it. We got to the point where we had done a three-page climate disclosure assessment because many of our customers ask us to disclose to CDP. Mm. And I will just put it out there. We have a tiny team in the center that I work with that does disclosure. For us, given the amount of GHG reductions we've done, the level of neutrality we have in the business we're literally talking about things on the order of magnitude of under 5,000 metric tons of carbon emissions right. in the business. And for us to muster up reporting to the CD so our customers can check a box on their RFP was a really challenging place. And it took us a while to convince customers to say, this three-pager tells you everything you need to know. It's five-year trends on emissions reductions. It's scope three. So I think there's something to be said too about as we raise the floor how do we simplify that for our various stakeholder audiences to really take action and make decisions? I mean, we want people to favor the leaders. It can get really complex really fast. Do you think about Ray Anderson once in a while? How does his legacy percolate in your mind? And what are your thoughts of if he was around today, how would he understand the agenda? What would he be walking into your office and saying, Aaron, let's do this. Do you think that way? <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, because I knew him and because I spent so much time with him when I was here. I mean, when I first started at Interface, my boss at the time who kind of ran R&D, I started as a research analyst in 2004, which is eons ago with the dinosaurs. <laughs> and my boss at the time, you know, was the head of R&D that was the guy that Ray pulled in XGE Plastics guy to be the technical framework to help transition the business off fossil, off petroleum-based materials, 
he was not kind of the emotional friendly guy. So he used to say to me, you have all the technical stuff, but you have to learn how to make it matter. So you need to spend time with Ray when he goes and talks to our customers and tells the story, right? Certainly whenever I'm in that role of talking to customers, I really think about Ray because I learned a lot from how he told the story of where we wanted to go and what was important to interface. And yeah, we still have challenges. I mean, we're not Nirvana. So since Ray's death, I've worked under three different CEOs and they've all had varying levels of fear, desire, support for sustainability, right? We just got a new CEO, which is very exciting. Her name is Laurel Hurd. And what I love about Laurel is she's really excited about learning and listening. So whenever I'm confronted with kind of a new leader or a customer conversation, I think about Ray. And then there are moments like when we launched carbon negative products a year and a half ago, I think Ray would have been wowed. When we started this, he was thinking about how will we just make the factories less bad? How will we use less nylon? How will we recycle this stuff? To imagine that like the business he created, which was carpet tiles, that we could produce a product that has a positive impact on the planet by storing more carbon than it emits, not with offsets, not by calculation, but you know, by actual materials. Yeah. I don't real, yeah. Real carbon negative. I don't think you could have imagined that. So I do have days when I think, wow, Ray would have been really wowed by this. But I've also been really excited to live through the era as you guys have with me in the sustainability movement where we don't just talk about Ray. We have Paul Pullman. We have leaders at Ikea and new leaders at Patagonia, Ryan, some of the companies in the survey and beyond. It's really nice to be in a place where we're not just talking about Ray, but I still struggle with why aren't there more of them? And why is it so hard for them to do what Ray did? Outliers and one of a kind are hard to replicate, but you're right, they should be ongoing inspirations. What I've done once in a while is watched a few old YouTube videos of Ray's speeches and the seminal one he gave in Hawaii to this, you know, the sales team and stuff. They're amazing. Like they're very modern. You could throw that almost in with any CEO talking about the agenda. And you're right. There's a personality piece. It's a braveness, a courage, a conviction, all those things have to overcome. But there are a number of new leaders that want to and are going to do that. And and hopefully we can all create the space for them. I should mention, if you ever want to get a little summary of Ray beyond the TED speech, a couple of years ago, this amazing independent filmmaker, Nathan Havey, reached out to Interface and he had read one of Ray's books. We had done an event together and he became so inspired by the story and really about creating a way to tell it in a short amount of time so that people could learn from the journey and understand what really helped us. So he created this movie called Beyond Zero. You can find it on the web. You can look at the trailer. And in some instances, he's showing it for educational purposes. And he's got some showings around the country. It's a really nice entryway into the story told through the eyes of people who worked here about how that transformation happened and the leadership really of Ray and his first leadership team to get there. Beyond Zero, subtitle for real. That would be a good required viewing for all of the sustainability MBA programs and other like folks who are now churning out people to lead the next transition. I'm just struck as we reflect here how long it took 
Ray's vision to become what it is today. And we're talking about the leadership survey and today's leaders. And I, I guess if we want to continue to make him proud, maybe the thing is, is to shrink that timeline. We, we've got to move faster from today's vision to what's required to deliver the just and sustainable economy we're pursuing. And so things like going for 2040, not 2050, how do we accelerate everything is the question that I guess keeps me up at night and keeps me motivated to keep doing this work too and raise questioning early about what and how his business should be is a, is a great example of what can result when you look at the fact that now you can buy a carbon negative, carbon neutral interface carpet tile anywhere in the world. It's kind of bonkers actually that that's possible. Yeah. And what's been really amazing to see is in 2018, we made all the products carbon neutral because we could, because we had gotten to a point where we'd reduced the product footprint close to 80%, right? You can't buy offsets when it's, you haven't done any reductions, A, because it's not legitimate, but B, because most companies can't afford it. It's not a good model. But what's been really interesting is to see the industry shift. When we launched that, it really resonated with customers as they started to say, how do we think about our scope three emissions and our buildings that we're building and our spaces. And within four years, four of our competitors now have carbon neutral products, not just across carpet tile, but across their resilient floorings as well, because we've extended it. These were companies that had never pledged, didn't have a focus on it, but were losing jobs to interface. And they had to figure out how to get there. I just think that maybe of all of the things that would just crack Ray up because he was such a competitive guy. So to be able to think like we did it and then we forced all of you guys who actually didn't really want to do it to do it too. That's the power of being a beacon on the hill. Back to the leader survey and all those companies just shining and showing and pulling others up along and being a demonstration of what good can look like. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you, Aaron, for joining us. You've been a remarkable special guest and we really enjoyed this conversation. We'll talk soon. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the All In Podcast. If so, don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss any future episodes. And why not also give us a five-star review on iTunes? It helps others to find us, which helps spread the message. 